0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're
1: stuck in a relationship quandary, In 2014, the town of Fayetteville, Arkansas, which is a college town, college towns tend to be a little bit more progressive and liberal than other places, passed an LGBT civil rights ordinance that was immediately challenged by local anti-gay haters and activists who gathered signatures and forced a referendum. And this family that you may have heard of, the Duggars of 19 and counting on TLC, really led the charge to, to repeal this ordinance. They donated tens of thousands of dollars to the repeal campaign. And Michelle Duggar, who is Jim Bob Duggar's wife, Ma Duggar, the vagina is not a clown car woman, the mother of the 19 children, she recorded a robocall uh, that went out to all the voters in Fayetteville, Arkansas, encouraging them to repeal this LGBT civil rights measure. And I'm going to read a little bit from the robocall for you. This is the text of it. Hello, this is Michelle Duggar. I am calling to inform you of some shocking news that would affect the safety of Northwest Arkansas women and children. The Fayetteville City Council is voting on an ordinance this Tuesday night that would allow men, yes I said men, to use women's and girls' restrooms, locker rooms, showers, sleeping areas, and other areas that are designated for females only. I don't believe the citizens of Fayetteville would want males with past child predator convictions that claim they are female to have a legal right to enter private areas reserved for women and girls. So that was Michelle Duggar actually in advance of the passing of this ordinance, recording a robocall in opposition to it, warning the good people of Fayetteville, Arkansas, that LGBT people, particularly T people, this is a particularly transphobic kind of demagoguery, were coming to molest their children. That transgender child predators, that men who claim they're trans women to get access to women's spaces were coming to molest little girls. At the time that she recorded this robocall, of course, Michelle Duggar had personal experience of what all the research tells us is true, that most child molestation happens not in public restrooms or play areas or gyms, but in homes within families. Because Michelle Duggar and Jim Bob Duggars, I'm sure I don't need to tell you, discovered when their son, Josh Duggar, was 14-ish that he had been molesting little girls, In their house, some of them his siblings, and they didn't take this to the authorities. They lied to the police, the one police officer that they did talk to and said that they had placed Josh in a treatment program when actually they had just sent Josh to hang out with somebody who rehabs houses in Nashville or something, some other city for the summer to work it out. And they didn't do the things that you're supposed to do. And allegedly Jim Bob – this is our part of the scandal. It hasn't been much unpacked. Jim Bob Duggar allegedly informed the elders of his church as to what was going on. And most church elders in most states, I don't know about the law in Arkansas, are what are known as required reporters or mandatory reporters that if they're aware of child abuse that they have to go to the police. And nobody has yet flipped that rock over. Who knew what? When did they know it? And why didn't these mandatory reporters go to the police? Anyway, all this came tumbling out just as I got home from my vacation in Europe. I was in Vienna hanging out with friends. It was a good time. And every time I looked at my phone while I was away, it was a stressful time every time I looked at my phone. Because the Family Research Council and the Family Research Council Action Group, which is their political wing – was leading this charge against The Real O'Neills, which is a sitcom that's going to be on ABC uh, this year, probably around December. It's going to be a mid-season replacement. And as you've probably heard, it is based loosely on my life. Very loosely. Loosely based, like a pass around party bottom after the international male leather competition this weekend in Chicago. Very loosely based. Uh this uh sitcom, The Real O'Neills, I didn't write it. I'm one of seven executive producers. Uh I was in the room when they were ginning it up and I was offering some suggestions about what I know about growing up in Chicago as a gay kid because it's set in Chicago and growing up in a Catholic family as a gay kid because it's a Catholic family. But it's not beyond that there is a gay kid and that gay kid's father happens to be a Chicago cop. It's really not based on my life at all. And I'm not a writer. and I'm only one of seven executive producers on this program. And yet – the Family Research Council, every time I looked at my phone, was just attacking this show, attacking me personally and calling me a threat to children and a danger to children and a bunch of other things. A mentally ill sodomite and a bully that they love to call me a bully over at the Family Research Council. Hey, Tony. And they they were demanding basically that ABC cancel this show because of my rather small involvement in it uh, and misreported involvement in it. It It's not a sitcom based on my life because I'm a danger to children. They even had a prayer of the day at family research council going out, asking the country to pray for protection, asking their followers to pray for protection from my vile spewings. Weird that they would go there. Weird that they would end up with that image, vile spewing. And the person leading this charge, the person... Family Research Action Council, whatever, Family FRC's uh, political wing, was Josh Duggar. The Duggar kid, the Duggar boy, running around claiming that I am a danger to children, that this show is a danger to children. When he himself, as a teenager, molested girls, including, according to the police reports, his sister's. There's this thing that the religious right does that's revealing. They claim that gay couples that wish to marry are attacking the family, that we're a danger to the institution of marriage. And it's really this effort to absolve straight people of their responsibility for the for their marriages. It's not that straight people are committing adultery, it's not that straight people are defining adultery always as a relationship termination event. It's not that straight people are divorcing and abandoning their children. It's not what straight people are doing to marriage that is undermining the heterosexual institution of marriage. It's what the evil boogeyman gay people want to do to marriage, which is get married. We're the threat, not you, straight people. And you see the same thing with child abuse, child molestation. Mostly happens in families. And yet when they want to talk about it, They want to argue that this isn't something that happens within good Christian homes. This isn't something that happens within quiverful, patriarchal, female-enslaving bullshit cults like the one that the Duggars belong to, where girls are taught that they are never allowed to say no to men. This is something that trans women do to little girls. Not the firstborn child of quiverful, God-fearing parents like Jim Bob and Michelle Duggar. It is an effort, again, to put that risk and danger out there and and put it on someone else. Not a problem in the family, it's a threat to the family. When the research, the data, what we know about this stuff shows it is almost always a problem in the family. It was a problem in Jim Bob and Michelle Duggar's family when they were out there demagoguing, attacking LGBT people, pointing a finger at LGBT people, Josh Duggar included, Goes on TV, says he opposes this ordinance because it is a danger to little girls. Says the danger to little girls. I take no delight in the fall of Josh Duggar. Josh Duggar had to leave his job at Family Research Council. All these Republican candidates running for president are very embarrassed by these photos that are flying around on the internet of them with Josh Duggar. The learning channel has temporarily suspended the show. We'll see what happens. And it's caused problems for Josh Duggar's family. And as much as I loathe Josh Duggar, and I loathe Jim Bob and Michelle Duggar, and loathe what they've done to their children, I take no delight in this. Five little girls were molested. We cannot lose sight of that as we, I don't know, as we acknowledge what happened. It's not an occasion for schadenfreude. It is not an occasion for delight. It is not an occasion as... Some people were clogging up my Twitter feed saying it's not Christmas in May. It's not. Little girls were molested. Little girls were abused and then failed by the people in their lives who were supposed to protect them and look out for them, their own parents, their own faith leaders. That's nothing to celebrate. I'm still concerned for these kids. I hope Child Protective Services is on its way to the Duggar compound to interview all these children. The Duggars, uh, in addition to being advocates for the Quiverful Movement, which is about having as many children as humanly possible and homeschooling and isolating your kids and lying to them about who they are and convincing girls that their virginity is the sole measure of their worth and that a woman's job is to always submit to the leadership of the men in her life, which seems to be a good way to enable this kind of intra-family abuse. They are homeschooled. And I'm wondering if these girls have had any counseling, any real counseling, not Bullshit religious counseling because one of the things flying around on the internet right now is the advice on counseling sexual abuse that is a part of the Duggars homeschool program, the homeschooling program that the Duggars use. And I don't give trigger warnings often or ever, but I'm going to give a trigger warning right now. If you have been abused, you might not want to listen to the next like 30 seconds or two minutes of what I'm going to say because this is what this religious homeschooling worksheet says that parents should say to their children who've been abused by, say, their older brother – One of the questions, why did God let it happen? Why did God let your older brother abuse you? Was it the result of immodest dress? Your fault, little girl. Indecent exposure? Your fault, little girl. But this is the one that made my head explode on this long worksheet. If the abused was not at fault, God compensates for physical abuse with spiritual power and then asks the little girl who's been abused, If you had to choose no physical abuse or mighty in spirit, because the experience of being abused will strengthen your soul and spirit. If you had to choose, little girl, between no physical abuse or mighty in spirit, what would you choose? I'm very curious to know, and I think Child Protective Services in Arkansas should be very curious to know whether these little girls who were abused were sat down and told that abuse was a good thing, was a gift from God, you know, like rape babies. Because if that's what they were told, if that's the kind of counseling that they received, that it was their fault and that it made them better Christians and brought them closer to God, so maybe they should all write little thank you notes to their older brother, they should be removed from the Duggars' home. They should get real world, reality-based non-slut-shaming, sex-shaming of little girls counseling. There is this subculture, this psycho-Christian, quiverful cult movement that the Duggars are the highest-profile participants in. And the Learning Channel has been complicit in mainstreaming this horseshit and making it look wholesome. U2 touch. U2 Us Weekly, U2 People Magazine. This is the reality of the Duggars. This bullshit, this sexist slut-shaming of little abused girls. The reality show is something different. The reality show is this packaged entertainment that has an agenda. You know, right-wing Christian idiots like the Duggars like to talk about the gay agenda. They have an agenda to mainstream their extremist, sexist, homophobic, quote-unquote, Christian belief system. And they've done it under the guise of this reality show, which then is pimped all over the magazines at the supermarket checkout. But the rea- we are now becoming familiar with the reality of the Duggar lifestyle. And it is a dangerous and immoral and sick one that is a threat to children. Not trans women in bathrooms, not a threat to children. Children in homes like this, the Duggar home, a threat to children. And now your calls.
2: Hi, Dan. So my mom just disclosed to my dad that she's been having an affair for the last 17 years. They've been together for 30. I've long assumed that they've had a companionate marriage, that they had an arrangement. But it turns out they just never talked about it. My dad is super upset. He's recontextualizing the last two decades of his life and is putting a real zap on his head. The lie is heartbreaking for him. But while I realize that both my parents are responsible for the dynamic that created this situation, I'm fairly angry with my mother for traumatizing my father in this way. Perhaps she was doing what she needed to stay married and stay sane, but at what point should one renegotiate the terms of the relationship or just end it? Also, was it really necessary to disclose how long it's been going on for? It just seems cruel. I'd like your opinion, perhaps even some guidance for how to go forward as a, a compassionate adult child of, of parents in this situation.
1: Are you not operating a car, flying a plane, uh, sitting in the same room with your mom?
2: <laughs> I'm nursing my baby.
1: Oh, okay. Ew! We don't allow li- nursing mothers on the Savage Lovecast. We don't allow that kind of indecency. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good thing I'm not outside. No, I love this. Is, you're our first nursing mother on the LoveCast that we know of. Every other woman we've called for the last five years could have been nursing their babies, for all I know. But you're our first out and proud nursing mother, and I thank you for that. <laughs> Great. So, about your mother, about yes. the nursing baby's grandmother. Why do you think she told your dad this suddenly? Why give him this info after 17 years?
2: Well, she is bipolar. And so she has also been having a mental health crisis um, at the same time. But she's had them in the past and never disclosed.
1: Do we know for sure that the affair happened, that it's not a delusion?
2: Well, that was one of my questions, too. But um, my younger brother actually saw her with this other person and uh, and went and talked to them. Mm-hmm. And they were just, like, buying a parking ticket or something. But, you know, he had a feeling. So later he... he He asked her about it and, and, um,
1: and she told him and she told him, okay, well, now everybody knows, and your dad is hurt and your mom is in what place is your mother? How's she feeling?
2: She's having a hard time right now too. She's, um, getting some help for her, you know, getting, getting stabilized with her mental health again.
1: It's tempting in a circumstance like this to to assume or to because you know we so stigmatize cheating, and you know what the the, uh, the long con that your mother was involved in was a very long con, and it's hard to just smile on it. But we often you know cast the cheater as you know one hundred percent evil, one hundred percent you know awful, and the cheated upon is a hundred percent pure and a hundred percent wrong, then a hundred percent innocent. But was there anything, do you think, in your parents' marriage for the first 13 years that laid the groundwork for this? Did your father sexually abandon your mother? You say it was companionate, or you assumed it was no, companionate. No, that was my assumption.
2: No, I think it's likely that they just never talked about it. Right? I always sort of give them the benefit of the doubt, like, oh, you know, they're just friends, or they have an arrangement. But, but looking back, I... Yeah. They didn't.
1: <laughs> was there, has your mother offered any reason for why she sought this guy out? Was he the love of her life, and she just didn't want to traumatize you kids by divorcing your father? Was she dependent on your father in some way that made it logistically or, or impossible for her? to Yeah, leave him? yeah, certainly. She was extremely. Well, dependent I mean, I haven't
2: talked to her um that much recently. I'm I'm going to go see her on Mother's Day.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but certainly, you know, they had a house together. The you know they living together was more comfortable, I think, for both of them than splitting up and splitting the finances and having to deal with, you know, the kids being upset. So mm-hmm. I definitely think it was the path of least resistance.
1: Um, Has your father had any moments where he said, you know, would he have wanted it to end 17 years ago? Would, you know, if he could turn back the clock and when this affair started, would he have been in a place where he would, you know, rather have not, you know, rather not rather she'd broken up with him or left him for this other guy? Does he look at every beat, every moment of the last 17 years as a lie that he wished he hadn't had to listen to or live through?
2: I think he's definitely had moments where he's thought, yeah, he could have done things differently. Yeah, um, or he, or maybe he wouldn't have looked after my mom and made the decisions that he's made if he had known.
1: So he was ca- he was caring for her physically, economically, looking after her after her mental health, he was doing all the heavy lifting of marriage and she was fucking this other guy. It's how he feels. about.
2: Yeah. 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 That's how he feels. That's not really how I feel right now. Um, I go back and forth, but I think that's what, how he feels.
1: Yeah. How do you feel right now?
2: I feel like I should try to be really compassionate and I shouldn't choose sides, even though I'm angry at my mom and I feel bad for my dad. Like I don't want to, let him fall into the martyr role, mm-hmm. and I don't want to villainize my mom because, you know, I'm a, I'm a parent too, and I think like she was just doing the best that she could. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just such a a mind fuck for my dad. That the lying part is
1: crazy. Absolutely, that's that's a huge mind fuck, and I don't want you know. You can try not to take sides. You can you know empathize with your mother and sympathize with your dad, you know, and not, you know, work not to see your mother as a villain and necessarily your dad as a victim, but you know, you should be able to say to your mother, that was super shitty. Whatever like your reasons were, even if some of those reasons were good, like look at what you've done to dad, the the, the pain that you inflicted on dad is just, you need to take some responsibility for that without being drawn and quartered without, you know, you're not going to be executed at dawn or anything, but own it. That, that, that you harmed him psychically, sexually, spiritually, however you want to classify the harm, you harmed him. And even if you can just get her to acknowledge that harm and apologize for it, that may help your father in some small way to begin to move past this. I don't know how you move past 17 years of this kind of deceit in a what is assumed to be a monogamous relationship to be married to somebody for three decades and have this thrown on your lap yeah which brings
2: me to the question like you know sometimes in your podcast you say you've got to you know do what you got to do to stay married and stay sane especially with young kids and if the alternative is divorce but then how do you extricate yourself from that or if you get caught do you like i think it's shitty that she admitted to all 17 years i think she should have been like Yeah, you know, it's
1: been about a year. I completely, I completely (laughs) agree with you. I completely agree with you that one of the ways, you know, if you're going to do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane, you know, I think you also have to take the sanity of your partner, your your the you know the the spouse that you're cheating on into some account too. You have a moral obligation to protect that person and to stick the dismount if you're going to end the marriage at some point, and not just dump the full unvarnished truth on them if it's going to shatter and destroy them that sometimes the loving thing to do is to withhold all the info yeah because it can be devastating i wish she had and and, you know if i had been by your mother's side and her advisor at that moment i'm not sure it would have helped if it was some sort of manic depressive episode but if i'd been out by her side i would have said either take this to the grave if you're not intending ever to get out of this marriage or as you suggest like tell them it's been six months or a year and let him think the last year of my marriage has been a lie, not more than half of my 30-year marriage has been a lie. Yeah. And sometimes people do what they have to do to stay married and stay sane. They they have sex with other people in a sexless marriage for a while. And then suddenly, and this is a case I wrote about in American Savage, my last book, the sex and the relationship <laughs> comes back and they let their peace on the side go and everything's great again. Because they didn't, and and they wouldn't have stayed long enough for things to get great again if they hadn't gotten sex elsewhere. Yeah. But if they disclosed, everything wouldn't be great again. So they're going to keep their mouth shut about it for fucking ever. And (laughs) that's part of, you know, when I say stay married and stay sane, I guess I don't mean sanity singular, not just sanity for the person cheating, but also sanity for the person being cheated on, which requires keeping your mouth shut about it. Or if there comes a point where you want to, unburden yourself or shift the burden onto their shoulders to minimize it so that you can stick a compassionate dismount. So you can get out of the relationship without creating devastation in your wake for your spouse that you stuck with for years. For some reason, your mother must like your father on some level.
2: Oh yeah. And they get along, right? The friends, but man, I think things are going to get worse before they get better.
1: Are they headed for divorce?
2: Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. I mean, it's pretty early to like, but things don't look
3: good Uh, for
1: marriage wise. You may soon be privy (laughs) to lots of information that as an adult child, you'd rather not have like your mom may come to you and say, your father stopped fucking me at three years and stopped having, and I waited a decade. Right. You know, I get letters all the time from people who've been with somebody in a sexless marriage and not always men, often women, and, you know, they've waited and begged and pleaded and cajoled for five years, for 10 years, for 15 years, and then they start cheating. And then mm-hmm. when the cheating gets found out, they're always the bad guy. Right. And they get no credit for time served, no credit for that five years, 10 years, 15 years that they tried, worked on it, went to couples counseling and nothing worked. And then they, they took a lover and stayed. And they're terrible people. So you may find out all sorts of info that complicates this picture right now, which is mom's all villain and dad's all victim. And you might not want to know, but you might not want to know, but it actually might help you find some compassion for your mother, which is not to excuse the hurt she's inflicted on your father. That As this unpacks, as this all comes out, it may not be white hat, black hat stuff is all I'm saying. And you should listen and love them both and try not to take sides. But not taking sides doesn't mean you can't say to your mother what you did was shitty and you can't say to your father, wow, that's really awful. That's not taking sides. That's acknowledging facts. Well, thank you for your call. You're welcome. And thank you for nursing your baby on the Savage (laughs) Lovecast.
2: My pleasure. Good luck. My pleasure. Thanks, Dan.
4: Bye. Hey, Dan. My name is Michael. I'm a 29-year-old from Texas. I met my boyfriend, who was 26 last June when I moved to our city. Uh, We hit it off really well. He's a really kind, intelligent guy, really easy to communicate with, and we're at the same place in our graduate program. But recently, I've been feeling sad about our relationship and unsure about our compatibility. About two months ago, he moved into my apartment, because he wasn't able to financially stay with his uh he didn't realize the amount of loans he needed to take out. So I told him to come live with me free of rent and utilities. And he said, Oh, that was fine and he would pick up groceries and help around the house. But he hasn't really fulfilled his commitment. Um about a month ago, uh two of our friends got into a car accident when a drunk driver hit them and they wound up in the ICU. Uh they're okay now, but the experience really emotionally rocked me. Um the core and I started crying thinking about what would happen and he got hurt and his reaction was really off-putting. It was as if he was trying to intellectualize my emotions and the experience and it didn't really feel like he understood where I was coming from emotionally. I feel kind of unsupported uh, with our relationship. I just got back from a conference for four days and The house was a wreck and there was no food when I got in and last week he had been away for a really long conference and I washed his car, cleaned the apartment, um, made him dinner in case he was hungry. I really feel like I'm putting in a lot into our relationship and I feel like I'm starting to nag him or getting ready to apply to uh, postgraduate programs and I'm working really hard and I'm trying to be a competitive applicant and I just feel like I'm pulling us along. He does help. But this is usually in spurts. He'll make dinners for a week and that will be really helpful. But I just feel like I need more help from him. I don't feel like he's my equal. I'm still really unsupported and unburdened and really ashamed because I don't know if I'm being a good boyfriend. And I'm, I don't know. I just need some advice on what to do to salvage our relationship.
1: So, my first impulse after listening to your call. And hearing your question, how do I salvage this relationship, was to turn on the microphone and scream, why on fucking earth would you want to salvage this relationship? He doesn't pay rent. He doesn't pay utilities. He doesn't clean. He doesn't cook. He doesn't doesn't sound like he's capable of meeting your emotional needs. Why do you want to salvage? What is there to salvage? He is an inconsiderate user. And then I listened to your call again because I didn't want to burn this down without doing my due diligence and what leapt out of me was we've been together for two months or he moved in two months ago. So it's only been two months of the living off you and the not cleaning and the not holding up his end of the bargain. If it had been six months, if it had been a year, I think I would go with why the fuck would you want to salvage this thing, dump the motherfucker already, burn this thing down. But at two months and if you really do like him and he's kind and everything else that you say that he is – I think at two months, which is just eight weeks, that this could be a communication problem. Sounds like you two are both still clawing your way to whatever language it is. You're still figuring each other out and how you fit together as a couple. And that's a long process of carving deep grooves into each other until you fit together because no two people fit together perfectly at the outset or even at the end set. But it's a process. And you need to shove all your chips into the center of the table and bet – that he is unaware of what a slob he is that he's unaware that he isn't holding up his end of the deal and you need to push that all onto the table and say to him look when you moved in and I agreed to help you out cuz I like you I love you we're boyfriends and I agreed to you know let you live here rent free and without utilities you made certain promises and you aren't holding up that end of the bargain and maybe that's because you know some people have different standards about what a messy apartment is. So your messy apartment could be his tidy enough. And if what you want is your style of tidy or closer to it, you guys need to have a conversation about that you need a conversation about what clean is, what, uh, you know, dinners are, what, you know, consistency and follow through. You're paying the rent every month. You're paying all the utilities every month. You expect not just a week's worth of effort every once in a while. You're not paying a week's worth of the rent every once in a while, But daily effort around cleanliness, around groceries, around his end of the bargain. And then after having a knockdown, drag out, screaming fight about that, if he doesn't come around, if he doesn't begin to hold up his end of the bargain, or if he only holds up his end of the bargain for a week, and then it's back to messy house, no food, inconsideration, then there's no salvaging this relationship. Then you two are not good together. You're just going to make each other miserable. And you can have a similar conversation around your emotional needs. Whatever it is that he said to you when you got so upset about your friends being in that car accident, it was not what you needed to hear. And he needs to hear that that wasn't what you needed to hear. And maybe what you needed to hear was nothing. Just you needed him to listen. Whatever it is, you need to lay it out for him. And then see if he can rise to the challenge of being your boyfriend. And if he can't rise to the challenge of being your boyfriend, and it's not far to rise, hold up your end of the bargain. Be there for me when I'm a basket case. Hold the plug.
5: Hi, Dan. I'm a 22-year-old lady, and I find myself in a bit of a pickle, no pun intended. I have a proclivity to date gay men. Uh, I'm sure you can understand this, since gay guys are generally cleaner and more polished than straight guys are, but this hasn't been great, since these guys aren't picking up what I'm putting down, if you know what I mean. My high school boyfriend was gay. In college, I pursued a gay guy, and most recently, I dated a guy, a bisexual guy, who was actually probably just gay. Is this behavior pathological? I think I'd like to be in a normal, healthy relationship, but am I subconsciously just sabotaging myself by pursuing these gay guys? Or are there well-groomed, polite, and sophisticated straight men in the world?
1: Are there well-groomed, sophisticated, and polite straight men in the world? Yes, there are, just as there are poorly groomed, unsophisticated, and impolite gay men in the world you're talking to one right now. You've noticed a pattern that you keep seeking out or somehow finding the gay boys. That could just be random coincidence. It couldn't be something that you're consciously or even subconsciously doing or seeking, but it could be something that you're subconsciously seeking. I often hear from straight girls who love gay men that they love us so much because we're nicer and kinder and less judgy and all these wonderful things and Wouldn't it be great? We're so lucky that we get to date each other. Wouldn't it be great if straight men were more like us? And the the answer to that is, yeah, we're nicer and kinder and all those wonderful things to you because we're not trying to fuck you. We're not trying to get in your pants. We're just as shitty to each other as straight men and straight women are to each other. There's as much game playing and hesitation and insecurity sort of warping people and making them douchey or Curdling them into assholes. Like, we do that to each other too. Yeah, we're awful to each other. Yeah, we're wonderful friends. And so, maybe what you're doing at this early stage of your life, you're in your early 20s, you're at that stage of life where a lot of the gay guys in your life maybe are not out yet or fully out yet. And you're picking up on that nice, kind, emotionally available to you as a lady stuff that exists in these guys because they're gay and they're either not trying to get in your pants or really not that excited about getting in your pants and being with you is easier and breezier because for them so much less is at stake because they're not emotionally or sexually invested in this relationship. So you may be picking guys, going after guys where there's just less resistance, less friction. It just seems easier. And those relationships, it's often true. Like it is easier. As a gay guy, when I was young and closeted and with girls, it was easier because I didn't care. The, the relationships were slightly effortless. It wasn't effort to have – it was effort to like have the sex. It was effortless to be there, be engaged, hang out, talk because whether the relationship lived or died, I didn't care because there was very little at stake for me emotionally. So they were very comfortable relationships. Maybe you're going after that. Maybe to go off in a new direction, what you need to do are identify the guys where it feels a little crunchy and challenging, where it feels a little harder, not so effortless. Relationships or guys that seem a little tense, uptight, risky, a little more dangerous because there's more at stake emotionally, sexually, and everything else. So so either it's a coincidence or you're going after literally the low-hanging fruit. In your social circles, which are the guys who are not out yet and it seems easy and breezy because they're gay. Challenge yourself. Live a little. And circling back to your question, well-groomed, sophisticated, polite, straight guys, they are out there. Sometimes they don't seem so sophisticated or polite when they are on a hunt for pussy, right? That can make a guy seem tense, weird, creepy, right? But they are out there, well-groomed, sophisticated, polite. They're out there. I met a whole room full of male models at a male model thing that my husband dragged me to. And they were all extremely well-groomed and sophisticated and so polite I thought they were all cocksuckers. But it turned out that they weren't. None of them. Not a one. Well-groomed, sophisticated, polite straight boys? Have you been to Europe? There are so many well-groomed, sophisticated, polite straight boys in Europe that there were websites at the beginning of the internet era where they would just show pictures of these well-groomed, sophisticated and polite Boys in Europe and ask European or gay, you might want to look those up in the archives. They're out there. There are well sophisticated, polite, straight boys out there. Go find a few and fuck them.
5: Hi, Dan. I am a late 20s lesbian in the Bay Area, recently out of a year and a half toxic
1: relationship.
5: And I'm having my first bloody casual dating phase of my life, and I'm loving it. I'm really happy to be single and finally free from my horrible for me ex partner. Uh, After a couple weeks of boring dates and some decent one-night stands with women, I met a guy at a bar, and long story short, I lost my gold star. I have been out for a decade and never been interested in guys, and what's most shocking about this experience is I loved it. The sex was so good and satisfying, not weird, not awkward, just shockingly good. Uh, I haven't even kissed a guy. And so long, I always found making out with guys boring, and I never thought I could have good sex with one. So, I find myself interested in exploring my potential bisexuality now. It's weird because I've always been so gay, but the sex was so good that I really want to try it again. Um, the guy that I had sex with was just visiting town, so he's gone now, and I have a date coming up with a guy from Tinder, so my question is about etiquette. Do I disclose to guys that I was a confirmed lesbian until a week ago? I didn't tell the guy I slept with that I had never slept with a guy before, but I told him I've only ever seriously dated women and that it takes a lot for me to be into a guy. Part of why I felt so safe with him was that he was a feminist and super respectful of women, and I felt really empowered in bed. I set my boundaries about what I would not would and wouldn't do, and he respected them, but I definitely downplayed the whole, you know, I'm a big dyke thing. so I'm not looking for a boyfriend. I'm just looking to explore a new part of my sexuality, potential friends with benefits, some short flings, et cetera. So how much should I disclose about my queerness? And how do I handle this with the women I'm dating? Uh, there's so much stigma with dykes about sleeping with men. And I'm a little embarrassed about how smug I was about my gold star status for years. So, you know, karma came and bit me in the ass because I like to Uh, Yeah, I just—I never thought I would be like that lesbian who starts dating dudes, but it feels right to me at this point in my life at 29 years old. So, any advice on navigating this major shift
1: in my life? I want to say I never hear this from gay guys. I never get calls or letters from gay guys who tell me that they were gay, 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 gay for a decade and gold star gays, and then. They ate a pussy and now they're totally into pussy and what do they do with that? Uh, I wish I could say that, but it's not entirely true. I do rarely, every once in a great while, over the years, a small handful of letters from gay guys who've discovered that they enjoy sex with women and are basically where you are now. Like, oh, God, I guess I'm bi exploring my bisexuality now. What does it mean to have to hand in my gay card Do I have to come out as by? What about the reaction of my gay friends? We're going to freak out. But like I said, just a handful of those questions over the last 25 years from gay dudes, this lesbian for a decade bearing down on those childbearing years, coincidentally enough, and suddenly jumping on deck. I get this question all the time and then I get yelled at and there will be yelling. There will be calls From Angry Lesbians, a call that perhaps you would have made two weeks ago, scolding me for even playing this call because now all these straight guys who listen to my podcast have heard – been reinforced to them once again that that any lesbian out there can be had. That all lesbians secretly in their part of parts at some point want dick and maybe it will be theirs. So I apologize to all the lesbians who may be hit on in the wake of this call by hopeful straight boys. But what can I do? This question comes in. I don't answer this question every time I get it. I'm not anxious to rush these questions to the front of the queue, but I got to take one every once in a while. So what do you do, caller? You obviously do what you did. You say, what do I do? This is what I did. It worked great. Now what do I do? Well, you keep doing what you did. You identify those feminist men that you feel safe with who are going to be very respectful of your boundaries. You tell the truth. Until a week ago, you were confirmed lesbian. Now you are on the bisexual farm team or something. But you're exploring men and you're excited about it but you have certain limitations. You have certain things that need to be taken into consideration about whatever it is, your emotional safety, your physical safety in the moment and you expect them to be considerate and attentive and not douchey. And if they are douchey or inattentive or inconsiderate, they don't get to touch your lesbian pussy with their dicks. They'll do whatever you tell them to. Straight guys love – and bi guys love that getting to be the magic dick that got to touch the lesbian pussy, right? It's a whole porn genre out there about just that. As for handling your relations with the lesbian community, you are not alone. There are many, many, we used to call them bi-dykes, lesbian-identified women who were actually bisexual, capable of falling in love with men or women, or lesbian-identified bi-women who were only capable of loving and only interested in relationships and commitments with other women but enjoyed dick every once in a while. And enjoyed male energy and attention every once in a while. And it's a glorious thing when two, lesbian, two lesbians like that, two bi-dykes, come together. And they have a wonderful relationship. And every once in a while they jump a dude together. I have known those lesbian couples. And they seem very happy, those bi-dyke couples. They seem very happy together. Perhaps you could be one of them. But don't go out there in the world ashamed of who you are or where your sexual journey and explorations have taken you. If there are lesbians out there who are threatened by where you're at right now, which is on a dick, fuck them. Who cares what they think? You couldn't have been a lesbian if you were at all concerned with what the majority of a certain group of people think. You came out as a lesbian when a majority of the straight people in your life probably disapproved. If coming out as a lesbian or a bi dyke or bisexual now freaks out some of the lesbians you know in your life, fuck them. Find better friends. Who aren't so insecure or freaked out. But who knows? In in outing yourself to your lesbian friends and your lesbian community about this, you may discover plenty of other women who've done the same – lesbian-identified women who've done the same thing that you're doing now. They had their dick days or they have their dick days every once in a while and they enjoy them. You may discover that there are women out there that you have this in common with. Women that you could go on dates and dicks with.
0: Hey, Dan, this is a 27-year-old bisexual female living abroad. I have a question relating to, I guess, family. I recently got married, and my partner and I decided to more or less elope. We had a really small ceremony with just our immediate family, and um, it was perfect. I wouldn't have changed anything. So my problem is that my extended family on my mom's side has been kind of shitty with her after our marriage. You know, we sent an email to everybody before we put anything on Facebook so that people wouldn't feel like it just came out of left field and they didn't know anything. But um, my aunt and uncle in particular have uh, kind of cut off contact with my mom. I know it's not necessarily my problem, but I feel really bad. Uh, that my parents are having to deal with some fallout on, you know, the happiest day of mine and my partner's life, and uh, I just wanted your advice on if there's anything that I can do to smooth things over for my mom, or just like, yeah, be a supportive daughter. I know weddings seem to be a big deal to everybody whose wedding it's not, actually, but uh, anyway, your perspective would be really appreciated.
1: It's funny how your aunt and your uncle in their reaction to not being invited to your wedding are demonstrating why you wouldn't want them at your wedding in the first place. They sound like unpleasant drama queens who are making a scene about your wedding and had they been at your wedding would very likely have engineered a scene at it as well. Here's what you do. It's simple. You write a letter to your aunt and your uncle and you say, I'm so sorry that our elopement hurt your feelings. I understand that you're mad, but if you want to be mad at someone, you should be mad at me and my husband, not at my mother. It wasn't my mother's decision to do an elopement. It was our decision. So I am sorry that your feelings were hurt. Please stop taking it out on my mother. That's all you got to say. And then if they don't, that's all you got to say. Here's hoping that they never get over it and you are free of them forever, that they never speak to you or your mother or anyone else ever again on your side of the family because they sound like, insane, insecure, juvenile, infantile shitbags that you're well rid of. And if your wedding was the mechanism by which you and your mother were relieved of having to interact with these people, congratulations on your marriage and your wedding and your elopement. You accomplished more than just committing to the man you love for the rest of your life. You accomplished getting these shitbags out of your mother's life and your life for the rest of your life too. Yahtzee.
5: Hi, a 30-year-old female here, heterosexual in a wonderful relationship. I am wondering if you have any advice for how to get over thinking that bodily fluids are really gross. I just think they're disgusting. I don't want them in my mouth. I don't know why other people want them in their mouth. Um, I grew up in a very sex-positive household. I loved having sex you know, all different ways. I want to be really open to things. Um, but I haven't ever been able to really enjoy oral sex. Um, I really love giving it until there are fluids involved. Um, and I don't really like getting it because I just can't get over it. Um, I guess I just don't really see why you would want them in your mouth. Um, but my partner really loves giving oral sex, um, and I would—I've heard that it's totally amazing. Um, I've definitely tried it uh, high, and that's the only time that I can uh, that I can really enjoy it, and it feels pretty good. Um, but I just—I've tried so hard, and I don't know what else to do. Um, if you have any advice, that'd be great.
1: Going to tackle first why you would want them in your mouth in the first place. Those fluids—why you would want? someone else's bodily fluids in your mouth. Well, because you are attracted to them because you like the way they smell. You like the way they taste. You want to just eat them, right? You want to pull all of their stuff essence into you in this just carnal way. It's hard to explain, but it's not for everybody. And as I've said before, When it comes to blowjobs, I think when the other person is coming, job done. They are at orgasm. You are giving them a blowjob to get them off and they are off gotten at that moment. They are blowing that load. And I think it's up to the blower at that crucial moment to decide how to dispose of the blow ease ejaculate. You can swallow it. You can let it run out of your mouth. You can take the dick out of your mouth and keep a wet and sloppy hand stroking that cock. Most guys can't even tell the difference at that precise moment and let the semen fly over your shoulder, whatever you want to do. Once they're blowing their load, emission accomplished. Ah, ah, ah. As for your tenseness about somebody consuming your bodily fluids – The fact that you can go there and enjoy it when you're high points to this not being entirely about just a simple preference. We're all allowed to have our limits and our likes and our dislikes and things we want to do and don't want to do in bed. if being high frees you of this tension, this inhibition, this block, then you should be able to free yourself of that tension, that inhibition, that block through will. Like you should be able to do for yourself what pot does for you if you think about it and unpack it and you crawl up to it with baby steps. Surely you're not opposed to your partner licking your tits. Surely you're not opposed to your partner kissing your stomach or your navel or their nose and face getting close to your genitals. I would encourage you to get a roll of saran wrap. And as unsexy as this sounds and all the lesbians who are trying to have safe sex in the 80s, in solidarity with their gay male brothers who used saran wrap in this way, assured me that it was deeply unsexy for them. But try it. Take a little sheet of saran wrap and cover your pussy with it. And then let him go to town and you will be able to enjoy the pressure, you know, the feel of his tongue and his face pressed against you while freeing yourself of that – that thought that sort of short circuits your turn on of like my fluids are going into his face. My fluids are going into his face. My gross bodily fluids. I'm doing this thing to him by shoving my fluids into his mouth that I wouldn't want him to do to me and that's not fair. And da, da, da. You can shut all that down with a thin sheet of saran wrap because there will be no fluids going into his face. Surely you don't mind you know, if you're rolling around with your boyfriend and he presses his face into your jeans while you're wearing them in your crotch area. You don't mind that. It's just that but thinner and transparent. And then keep going. Do that over and over and over again until you're just used to his presence here, used to how it feels. And have him tell you, ask him and let him listen to this and he should tell you how much he enjoys tasting you and ingesting your fluids and taking all that in and eating all that up. And accept that he may feel differently about taking in your bodily fluids than you feel about taking in his, and it's okay for there to be a disparity. If he's not hung up on you eating his load, which comes all at once in a burst, don't you be hung up on his willingness to eat yours, which comes very gradually as a shellacking. I think they call it exposure therapy. like Gradually and slowly, with the saran wrap, handy right by the bedside, expose yourself to cunnilingus, to his face in your crotch, and then... At some point, just pull the saran wrap aside and let him go to town. And there's nothing wrong with getting high every once in a while, if that's what it takes.
6: Somehow, I volunteered to be a teacher at a local prison. Not a local prison, it's a state prison, but it's located locally. Anyway, I seem to have fallen in love with one of the inmates who is straight, but he writes me all of these very explicit letters he knows i'm a bottom and he he, he thinks it'd be really terrific to be a top and to top me the trouble is i'm getting deeper and deeper in love with this guy and it's like what what this is this is like apples and oranges
1: Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments as william shakespeare once said Uh, yeah, he's straight and in prison and you sound like a very kindly gay gentleman that he came into contact with and maybe he actually has some uh, affection for, but we need to look at this with cold eyes, without illusions and ask ourselves, what's the likeliest thing that's going on here? It seems likelier that this guy is not perhaps maliciously toying with your affections, But toying with your affections in a way because he likes the attention that you're lavishing on him. And he's giving you a kind of attention that you enjoy. But this is about a a lonely person in prison who's now got a pen pal and he's romancing you. And maybe he has no malicious intent. Maybe there's no ask coming. He's not going to ask you for money. He's not going to ask you for help when he gets out or a place to live or to put him, put him up, but he could. And, you know, sometimes people do, you know, there are prisoners out there with a lot of time on their hands and some of them pass that time in correspondence with kindly people who empathize with their plight and rightly so. But every once in a while, a prisoner will leverage or exploit someone's attraction or desire or sexual needs and get something that they want. Use that person. So I think you need to be on guard against being used. I'm not saying he is using you. I'm not saying that this couldn't be just a kind of miraculous meeting of two people who are perfect for each other in every possible way, except one's in prison and straight and they're both men. It could be a, a wonderful once-in-a-lifetime rare encounter that brought out in him, you know, his – whatever bisexuality was in his heart and part and brought to you this sexy, exciting new person who lavishes this kind of attention on you that you were lacking in your life. It could just be a wonderful thing. But it could also be a usey thing. It could also be a not-so-wonderful thing. Keep your wits about you. Try to keep this in perspective Use your common sense, protect your privacy and enjoy it, but enjoy it for what it is and what it most likely is, is a fantasy. And it sounds like a pretty good one. Enjoy it. Just protect yourself. So you aren't heartbroken when you find out this thing isn't what you thought it was.
5: Hi, Dan. I am a 28 year old straight woman in the Pacific Northwest. And I have a question for you. um I'm, I've been dating this guy for about eight months. And when we first got together, the sex was awesome. It was amazing. It was really fun, I think mutually, you know, and he seemed to have no problem coming from fucking me. And since then, I would say he got blasted for the first month or so. And after that, he'd really only, he'd really only been able to come from oral, from so me giving him blowjobs. And the thing is, I love giving blowjobs. I'm really good at it. And I have no problem doing it, but I feel a little bit funny about it because he, this seems to be like the only thing that will get in there from me. And, um, you know, we've sort of talked about it a little bit and he'll say things that are really vague, like, oh, I just can't feel you as well as I could before. But like, that doesn't make any sense. You know, we have a long term relationship and often I will not be having Sex for weeks at a time, and, and then we'll see each other, and, and it's still just like not enough for him. So it's not like I don't think it's anatomically me. You know, the other thing that's complicated about this is that um, he will not reciprocate. He said early on in our relationship that he really only gives oral to slender women. And I mean, the thing is, I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm in good shape. I'm like, you know, petite and athletic and, um, You know, but he, he doesn't give oral to girls like me, apparently to curvy girls. So I just, I don't know. I don't want to withhold oral and sort of force him, you know, just to come from fucking me. But it it feels bad. It makes me ashamed of my body somehow. And I don't really know how to be like, well, this is an option, but I don't want it to be the only option. Any advice?
1: I have a follow-up question for you, and I mean it in the nicest possible way, and I hope you don't take it the wrong way. So here goes. No, no, go for it. What the fuck is wrong with you? With me? Yes. Okay, please continue. Why are you wasting one second on this asshole? This guy (laughs) says the, the rudest, douchiest, most selfish fucking body shaming thing he could possibly say oh you know thank you for all the blowjobs and i would eat your pussy but i only go down on slender ladies only slender ladies only slender ladies (laughs) and your response your reaction is to run to a mirror and scrutinize your body for evidence of what's wrong with you when what's wrong here is him the only thing wrong with you is that you're that you didn't immediately grab him by the scruff of the neck and throw him out the window (laughs) he's an asshole you think it's that bad? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think it's that bad. And I think only your social conditioning as a woman prevents you from seeing how bad it is. I'm
5: sure that's totally true.
1: He's an asshole. He's selfish. He conned you into believing that the only reason he wasn't eating your pussy was there's something wrong with your body as he's stuffing his dick in your mouth. He's, <laughs> he's using you as kind of like a cum dump, like a human fleshlight. He come he comes to town and jacks off in your mouth. He doesn't interested in inter- penetrative sex with you anymore. Isn't, you know, oral only relationships are awesome if they're reciprocal or the non-reciprocation is eroticized somehow and that's what the person who's not getting any in return is getting out of it, that sort of perverse desire to be used, but that's not what you want. You want a relationship that's where your sexual needs are being met too by someone who doesn't make you feel subconscious and insecure about your body.
5: I mean, like, he does still fuck me. It's just, you know, like, it would sort of reach this point where for him, like, the only option for him coming is oral from me. But it's something that I never get back. So it's just like, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, like I hear what you're saying. I'm not trying to justify it. but
1: I I wouldn't necessarily even – I wouldn't be as angry or or annoyed at him and curious about what the fuck was wrong with you if he said – you know, I can accept your blowjobs and the spirit that they're offered, but oral isn't something I've been ever, ever been able to do. It's okay for people to have sort of, you know, a hypocritical limit like that. Like, I can have my ass yeah, totally. and I can't eat ass. There are guys out there mm-hmm, like that, right? Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, so long and I as they, totally get that. So long as they embrace it, as something wrong with them. I have this limitation that's a little unfair, and I recognize that it's unfair, that I can get blowjobs, but I can't give them. Yeah, And I'm sorry. And if you don't want to blow me, if I can't reciprocate, then you don't have to blow me. But that he's, like, accepting your blowjobs and then saying, oh, you would be totally getting your pussy. I would totally eat your pussy if there wasn't so much tragically wrong with your body. Like, that, <laughs> yeah. that, that's well, how I he mean, frames it? Oh, no, no, no. See, the thing is,
5: so I, like, between, you know, when I called in and now, I actually did confront him about it. and. He sort of acknowledged that it was, like, fucked up on his part. You know, he's like, I have this psychological thing that at first... It's but the thing is, it's not at first anymore. It's been, like, eight fucking months, you know? So,
1: Yeah, why? Why has yeah. it been eight fucking months as opposed to eight fucking minutes? Eight minutes? That's what I'm curious about.
5: Because <laughs> I let it happen because of my it, social conditioning. You let it happen.
1: And, when I, and you know, you're going to hear your voice played back when you listen to the show. You're going to hear yourself say, he said this thing about... You know, he can only slender women and then you start critiquing your body. Then you start sort of doing his job for him and like finding fault with yourself to sort of explain away or justify his position on eating pussy only for skinny girls, not for you
5: I'd also like to just sort of say, like, I'm not fat. Like, I'm not, like, objectively even if not, you, like...
1: Even if you were.
5: You know, even if I were. Even I, I if know, you were, it, it, wouldn't make, more absurd.
1: it wouldn't make a goddamn bit of difference and it wouldn't change my advice yeah, for you right, at right. all. Yeah. That he yeah. revealed well, himself at that moment with that comment to be someone who doesn't deserve pussy ever. Or mouth <laughs> ever. Until he figures out what the fuck is wrong with him.
4: Yeah.
5: Fair enough.
1: Stop fucking that man.
5: Okay. All right.
1: I think you live in my neighborhood. I think, I, think I, 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 do. I, I, can, I can hunt you down and I can slap that dick out of your mouth. If that's <laughs> what it sincere. takes.
5: Did you feel a disturbance in the forest? Yeah, <laughs> I did. Yeah. I did
1: feel a disturbance <laughs> in the forest.
5: All right. I will stop putting up with the assholery immediately. Good. Hi, Dan. I am a longtime listener to your podcast. Uh, I'm 30 years old, I'm a bisexual female, and I'm polyamorous. Last summer I came out as bisexual to my family, and I recently came out, I told my stepmom that I was polyamorous, and she took it you know, really well, we talked about it, she had some questions and all that. I told her that I have a girlfriend, my and my boyfriend of about a year, Uh, I've been dating a wonderful woman together for the last few months. And, uh, things are, you know, getting serious between her, her and us. And I'd like to, you know, have her meet the family and stuff. So, which, um, my son said wouldn't be a problem. Um, everyone in my family is pretty much live and let live. She was concerned about what to tell my 11 year old cousin though. Um, I think that kids are able to handle the truth about, you know, uh, relationships a lot better than adults give them credit for. Um, she's kind of on the other side of that thinking that, you know, we shouldn't explain to him or, you know, it would be too weird to explain to him what polyamory is. So I was just wondering what your opinion on that was, you know, how much to tell uh, a kid and that would be uh, really helpful.
1: You know, back in the day and probably still in some red States, when a gay dude or a lesbian or a bisexual with a same sex partner was going to bring their first, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever friend, some other point along the gender spectrum, friend, home, there would be this hand-wringing about, oh, what to tell the kids. And it's not hard to tell the kids. The kids are not confused by it. And how hard is it to explain that someone's gay? You know, uh, Danny's here with Peter, his boyfriend, and... Danny has a boyfriend. Boys can have boyfriends. Yeah, some guys fall in love with guys. That's all you had to say 30 years ago when I brought a first boyfriend home. And the kids had no problem with it. It made the adults uncomfortable to have to explain it. But that was their problem. The kids didn't have a problem with it. And I don't think that you coming home, you going around the family with your boyfriend and your girlfriend, oh, what to tell the kids. You know, what the kids found out when I came home with my boyfriend, my little cousins, my nieces and nephews, what they found out. Uh, was that some people were gay and they kind of needed to know that because some people are gay and they were going to encounter gay people in their lives and there was a chance that some of them could have been gay and it was nice for them to know that if they were gay that their family wasn't have a problem with it all sorts of upsides well all they're going to find out when you come home with a boyfriend and a girlfriend is that dot 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 some people are poly that some just as some guys have boyfriends Some girls, like your aunt, have boyfriends and girlfriends and not everybody's poly. Most people, like when I would go home with my boyfriend, most people in the family were straight. I was not, but gay was a thing. You'll go home with two people. Most people in your family have one partner, but you have two. Most people are monogamous or appear to be monogamous and some people are polyamorous and it's not a problem. And the kids won't have an issue with it. Their eyes will be opened that there's more out there in the world than they're, they were aware of yesterday, and more possibilities for them than they were aware of yesterday. But they're not going to shit their pants. They're not going to be confused. They're not going to be wrecked or destroyed. And the people again, the people who have a problem with it aren't the kids. It's the adults in the room who believe that if they can protect their children from the news that gay people exist, or poly people exist, or kinky people exist. Where trans people exist, that their kids will be inoculated against the kink, the poly, the gay, and the trans. And it ain't true. All they're going to get, all they're going to catch, if their aunt who's poly comes home with her partners or their cousin Danny who's gay comes home with his boyfriend, all they're going to catch from that is the awareness that if they are different themselves when they grow up, they will be loved and accepted just as you are. Not a bad thing to explain to a kid or to help a kid understand.
3: Hey, Dan, I've got kind of a weird one here. I am straight male, living in the Midwest. I am a small business owner in construction field. I'm actually on a job right now and uh, the head contractor for the job uh, just came in, saw my work, loved it, wants to bypass going through the much larger company in town from now on and have me do all of his work uh, in the field that I specialize in great news. Then after chit chatting for a few minutes, he made this horrible comment about a lesbian couple that he knew or he met and how they weren't real women. And, you know, along that lines, just very bigoted comment. And I, you know, not wanting to stir the shit at work, just deadpan face, didn't say anything, but didn't encourage him at all. He kind of, shut up and change the subject after that. I'm kind of mixed on how I should have reacted. I I feel a little bad. I feel like I should have just kind of lit into him. On the other hand, I've got a small business that I want to expand. And, you know, he's a fairly big contractor in town and I'd like his business and I don't want it pushed away. But at the same time, I am very anti-bigot and um, I don't know where... I should go with this. (laughs) Any advice?
1: I don't want to date myself, uh, but I'm old enough to remember a time when the default assumption in a room full of white people was that we were all racists. So the people in the room who were shitty racists would say shitty racist things on the assumption that everyone either agreed with them or would not get in their face, not argue with them because we're all racists here. And there came a tipping point within my living memory where that Cultural compact began to shift that people, white people who weren't shitty white people, didn't want to be assumed to be racist and they began to speak up. Sometimes white people who'd been in the room for a long time when shitty racist things were being said finally began to speak up and say, you know what? Don't say that in front of me. I disagree with you. I think that's hateful and horrible. Don't say that in front of my children or your children because you don't want them picking up on that kind of hatred and that was a wonderful thing. Didn't solve racism. Still wrestling with racism, of course. But it was – it was a shift. You know, It knocked the racists back on their heels a little bit where they could no longer safely assume just because there were only white people in the room that, of course, we were all racist. You could say any shitty racist thing you wanted to. We're getting there on queer issues, right? Where it used to be if it was all straight people in the room, somebody straight could say some shitty anti-queer thing. Secure – In the knowledge or the assumption that everybody in the room was either an anti-queer bigot themselves or not going to get in their face about it, not going to speak up, not going to come to the defense of the queers. And it took, you know, 30 years ago, people like my mother, after I came out, beginning to say when people would say shitty anti-gay things in front of her, you know, my son is gay. And that was usually all it took. My mother, we talk about the first time she said that she was the mother of a gay child was when she was at lunch with a bunch of her friends from Immaculata High School women she'd known all her life since she was a child, women she'd gone to grade school with, and they were all at one of their regular lunches and somebody made an anti-gay remark. And my mother, who I had come out to six months or a year earlier, paused and then said, you know, Danny's gay. My son is gay. And she instantly got an apology and it changed the tenor of the conversation about gay people among my mother's friends because now they weren't talking about the like mustachioed clone cocksucking gay boogie monsters that they'd seen on TV, but about Judy's kid. She spoke up in that room full of straight people. She wasn't going to allow this room full of her straight friends, closest friends, assume that she was an anti-gay bigot herself anymore. She wasn't going to let them assume any longer that if everyone in the room was straight, they could safely assume that everyone in the room was a homophobe because my mother was not and was working through it. I didn't want to be surrounded by it anymore. Okay, your situation is a little different. You are not an anti-queer bigot. You're also not the parent of a queer kid. And you're also in a kind of fucked up power dynamic with this guy where he has economic power over you. You don't want to alienate a potential client, right? Somebody who could improve your economic situation, help you grow your business. I understand that. I don't think you failed the queer people in your life or your own politics by not tearing into him by not screaming bigot in his face. Here's how I would recommend you handle it in the future. If it happens again with him or somebody else, a cold and stony silence with no betrayal on your face of anger or judgment, just no reaction at all. He says the thing and you stare blankly at him and change the subject. He'll subtly get the message or he'll overtly get the message. You also have the option of Saying when someone says that of speaking up, of risking something. You say you're pro LGBT. Hopefully, he's not the only contractor in town, not the only person with whom you can do business. And you could speak up in that moment without hectoring, without lecturing, without tearing into him and just say, you know, I hear you, but I have lots of lesbian friends and they run the spectrum from very feminine ladies to very butch ladies. Not that there's anything wrong with the butch ones. And I appreciate not hearing stuff like that. And then you keep the conversation going. You change the subject after that so you don't begin to spin your tires, right? Just like keep it going. Prove to him that you're not so angry at him and not judging him so severely that you can't continue to interact with him in a cordial or professional manner. You know, I have lots of lesbian friends. Uh, they're, they're good people. And on you go, talk about the Cubs, talk about whatever. Change the subject. Might cost you some business, but you 're going to make the world a slightly better place, and you won 't leave that interaction recriminating yourself for what you didn 't say. You know People sometimes talk about these issues like you either have to say nothing to go along to get along, or you have to blow up and there 's a large middle ground between keeping your mouth shut and screaming and yelling and pointing a finger and that can be you can take my mother 's page because my mother didn 't say when her friend said the anti gay I think it was a joke or a remark. I don't remember. She didn't say, you're a fucking bigot. She didn't point a finger and begin screaming. She said, you know, my son Danny is gay. And then the other person had to think about what they said and the impact it was having on this person that they knew and liked who was not a gay person. And you have that option too. Hopefully you have a lesbian friend or relative or a gay friend or relative. And when he said that, you could have just said, you know, my aunt, Florence is a lesbian and she's good people. Not you're a bigot, but I know lesbians and they, they they can be good people. Some of them can be shitty people. Just like some of anybody can be shitty people. And then let him think about what he said in the assumption that he made. And the assumption he made was because you're straight, you're a bigot like me. You're an anti-gay bigot like me. And he's going to leave that interaction with you. Unsure of that assumption, unlikely to make that assumption again in the future. And that's what we want. We want the bigots to feel like they're not the majority, like they can't assume that everyone's a bigot like them, whatever kind of bigotry you're talking about. And you can help bring us closer to that world, to that tipping point. You can help get us there by speaking up. There are scientists, sex researchers, psychologists, doctors out there trying to figure out why we do what we do, why we screw what we screw. Uh, And every once in a while they publish the results of one of their findings, one of their big studies, and we like to have them on the show when they do, to tell us what they got. Hey! Ooh, what you got. Joining me by phone today to tell us what he's got, Dr. Dan Kruger, professor at the University of Michigan. So, Dr. Kruger, what you got?
6: Well, we did a study looking to see when people outed cheaters. So there's a lot of research on sexual infidelity, as you might imagine, but surprisingly no previous work on just when people are likely to expose someone who's cheating on their romantic partner who doesn't know about it.
1: Okay, so we're not we're, we're talking about people, you know, ratting out a friend who's cheating or finding out mom's cheating on dad and whether they go tell dad that mom's cheating. The the uninvolved third party ratting somebody out. That's what you looked at?
6: Correct. Correct. Yeah, an uninvolved third party. When are you going to expose a cheater? when the other person in the relationship doesn't know that this cheating is going on.
1: And what did you find?
6: Well, we had a lot of predictions that were confirmed. One, that people protect friends and family, so they're more likely to expose a cheater when it's one of their family members or one of their close friends that's being cheated on. However, they're actually less likely to expose the cheating when it's their friend or family member that's doing the cheating. Okay, So they have a bias you know, a bias, a bias to protect and similar patterns depending on relationship characteristics. So if someone is abusive in the relationship or their previous cheater, you're less likely to be favored. So, you know, you're less likely to tell them that someone was cheating on them and you're less likely to, you know, expose the cheating. Uh, You're more more likely to expose the cheating when they were the ones who are doing it. And, uh, you know, a few other important points when there was, uh, you know, an important relationship transition in question, like the naive party was thinking about getting engaged, you know, moving the relationship up in Uh uh, commitment, you know, people would inform them, you know, hey, wait a minute, you know, this might not be such a great idea. So when there are important relationship transitions at stake and when people were investing financially in their partners they're also more likely to be informed.
1: So the takeaway here then for cheaters is if you're cheating on someone successfully and you think you're getting away with it, don't propose to that person you're
6: cheating right, on. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's definitely something that's kind of inconsistent.
1: It's weird though. You know, th- this comes up a lot because I do get calls occasionally from people who are, uh, you know, in possession of this knowledge. They know that a friend or a family member, sometimes a parent is being cheated on. And they want to know what to do. And it sounds like your research showed that if somebody had a relationship with one party, like, you know, my relative is being cheated on by their spouse, that they felt obligated to go and disclose. But if their uh, relative was the one doing the cheating, they felt less – they were less likely to run and disclose, running out their relative to the – you know, the non-blood relative to the to the person who married into the family. But what, did you look into the situations where, because this has come up a lot on the show, where one parent is cheating on the other parent and the child who has a relationship with both and an equal relationship with both doesn't know what to do?
6: That That's not a question that we use. Uh, you know, this is actually the first kind of study of its kind. So we asked a lot of questions, you know, since it was, it was fairly exploratory, but we did not ask about, you know, cheating when both of the parties are relatives, but that would that would be an important, uh, an interesting extension.
1: You said that you found most of what you found uh, confirmed uh, your hypotheses or hypothesis. Did you find anything out that shocked you? That surprised you?
6: Well, one thing that was uh, shocking uh, was that uh, the largest effect was when the third party, so basically the one that's cheating on you know having the having the cheating relationship with one of the partners when they have a sexually transmitted disease, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that was when people were most likely, uh, to, to tell. So, you know, it shows that they're, they're attuned to that and protecting their, you know, their person they know from potentially getting a disease. So, so that was a pretty striking finding. Uh, one thing that, you know, was, was sort of interesting was that, you know, we're asking all these questions, you know, would you be more or less likely to expose the cheating, you know, if the person was a close relative, if they're very religious, if they're a woman, if they're a man? And the funny thing is giving people any information, they were more likely to say, you know, they're saying, well, yeah, I'd be more likely to tell in that in that case. So people sort of had this positive bias in the sense that they always said, yeah, I'd, I'd be a little more likely to do this. So what we did was we compared similar items to each other uh, to remove this. So, if your friend was cheating, how likely would you be to tell on them? Versus, if your friend was being cheated on, mm-hmm. how likely would you be to to expose it? And that and that controls for that sort of positive bias for exposure.
1: Are there any lessons in here for people who are being cheated on in this study?
6: Well, yeah, for the people being cheated on, ask your friends. You know, ask your friends if they know anything is up, because. People were actually much more likely to say they had revealed the cheating if the person being cheated on asked you. You know, if they asked about about this, then people were more likely to say yes, that's happening.
1: And any advice for cheaters who want to get away with it? How can they disclose your proof they're cheating? Have no friends. Well, you know, <laughs> that would be the <laughs> advice. Have no friends. Have no relatives, and then you're golden.
6: Well, you know, try to you know, if you're, if you're cheating, you know, you reduce your risk of being exposed. If that's the only bad thing that you're doing, because if you're doing other things, like if you're taking money from the other person, you know, if this, if this is an abusive relationship, if they're abusing their partner as well, then they're more likely to be outed.
1: So the better you treat the partner you're cheating on, the less likely you are to be outed to that partner for cheating.
6: Correct. Correct. (laughs) Yeah. So if you're, if you're giving them money, if you're giving them money, you know, and such things, then you're less likely to be exposed. But if you're taking more things from them or abusing them, then you're more likely to be exposed.
1: Are you going to look into this more? Like one thing I'd love to see studied while I have a scientist on the phone who studies this stuff is that sometimes after uh, cheating is exposed, sometimes after someone asks or they find out, you know, you talk to them like a year or two down the line. And if they manage to keep the relationship together and stay in the relationship, I will sometimes ask people, do you wish you'd never found out? Do you wish you'd never been told? And they'll often say yes, that they wish they didn't know. And if you should research that, like a study of people who've been cheated on and whether, they, whether the relationship survived or not, if they would rather never have found out, if that was an option for them.
6: Well, you know what? I'd, I'd love to do that. And actually, with your uh, you know, audience base, maybe we could put a little survey on the internet and see just what happens.
1: I would be happy to help. Where can people who want to read the results of the study that you've just uh, conducted and published, uh, where can they f- find it?
6: It's an archives of sexual behavior.
1: And the title of it?
6: Factors Influencing the Intended Likelihood of Exposing Sexual Infidelity by myself, Daniel J. Kruger, and my collaborators, Marianne Fisher and Carrie Fitzgerald.
1: Dr. Dan Kruger, professor at the University of Michigan. Professor of what, if I may ask?
6: I'm a a professor of uh, public health psychology, and uh, I dabble a bit in other things as well.
1: Well, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. It was a fascinating uh, fascinating study. Keep looking into this. I, this. We'll have you on constantly if you keep publishing in this vein.
6: Excellent. Well, I appreciate your interest.
5: Hey, Dan. I'm just calling in response to episode 447. There was a woman who called about um, being afraid that her boyfriend was gay, and you gave her some great advice. But at one point, she was discussing some concern about her acrylic nails. So I just wanted to let her know. One of the things that we do in the sex industry and porn – when a woman has these fucking huge ass talons is you take a latex glove or non-latex glove and you put the cotton balls in the tips of them. And then you can finger away safely without tearing up anyone's vagina or rectum. So maybe she can keep that in mind and give that a try.
4: Hi Dan, this is a comment for episode four, four seven and the woman with the bisexual boyfriend. I just wanted to add a comment that uh, she could also go out and buy a strap on and bring it into the bedroom And while they're incorporating their dirty talk, she could ask if he's interested in sucking a dick and then go into the bathroom and come out with one for him to suck. Hey, this is a quick story for the woman in episode 447 who's nervous about asking if the guy she's got a crush on is gay. Uh, A little over five years ago, I had a first date with a woman who noticed the I Support Gay Marriage sticker on my guitar case. She said, oh, are you gay? And I said, no, I'm hitting on you. And she said, oh. Uh, carry on, then. I did indeed carry on. We've been married for almost nine months now. Uh, your mileage may vary, but just ask him. It could be great.
1: And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. We've announced the call for submissions for the HumpFest 2015. Go to humpseattle.com and click on submissions if you want to get your amateur porn into the country's best amateur porn film festival. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. The Savage Lovecast is produced by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading